0: Good afternoon
1: and welcome. It's Tuesday, time to talk politics, and there is a great deal to talk about. Just in, as you heard in Bob's News Federal, the Federal Auditor General report on COVID. It comes a week after Ontario's report on the same subject. Federal Auditor Karen Hogan found the rollout to be efficient, unlike Ontario Auditor General Bonnie Lissick, who last week called... Ontario's rollout, inefficient. They both agreed that many doses were wasted. And yes, the Liberal government got a lot of credit for getting cash to support people quickly. But the AG reports that Ottawa sent $4.6 billion to people who were ineligible. And she warns that the government may be running out of time to collect I'm also hoping to get to that new Main Street poll that shows a majority of Ontarians, including progressive conservative voters, oppose Bill 23 and the opening of parts of the Green Belt to, developing, to development. Also, the grocery hearings on the Hill. My take? Those speaking for the big food chains will have to do better. If they want to convince Canadians, there is no greedflation.
0: And now, the Recovering Politicians panel.
1: And now I'd like to welcome Lisa Rate, the former deputy leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, John Malloy, former Ontario Liberal MPP who served as a cabinet minister under the Dalton McGuinty and Kathleen Wynne governments, and Sherry Denovo, a former Ontario NDP MPP. Welcome, everyone. A pleasure, Libby. Okay. Thanks, Libby. Well, uh, let's begin with uh, John Malloy uh, and on the vaccine rollout. Uh, I have to admit, I was a little shaking my head that the rollout, she deemed it to be so efficient. We were very late getting doses. I didn't see anything about that. And, and that surprised me because I remember at the beginning of the vaccine campaign, you know, we were we were behind places like Serbia and Croatia.
2: Well, I think, I guess my reaction to all this is, is, first of all, it's important that we look at what happened and it's important that, uh, you know, we find lessons moving forward. But, you know, the, the nature of this panel, the political panel, I'm, I'm not sure politically this stuff is uh, is going to fly very much. I think... Most uh, Canadians and you know people in Ontario, because you mentioned the, the the intro about what's going on with the uh, the provincial government. Most of them saw this as a very chaotic period. They saw governments that were making lots of mistakes. Sometimes even admitting they were making mistakes. It was such a unique uh, confluence of events that. I think people aren't overly surprised one way or the other that some things went well, some things didn't go well. And I, I, I think Canadians are going to be looking forward and I'm not sure it's going to have that much of a, of a, of a, of a political impact. In fact, I agree with you. I'm, I'm surprised that we didn't hear about, about more problems because, uh, you know, that was every day the headline about how they had messed up on this point or messed up on that point. But I think people have maybe even become, become a little bit numb to all that.
1: Lisa, what about that four point six billion going to people who are ineligible?
3: Well, you know, we got to break it down a little bit because there's a lot of people out there. Just they thought that they were going to be eligible, and it turns out they weren't. So those letters have gone out to a lot. University students would be some of those caught in caught in that, and they're going to pay it back, or somebody's going to pay it back. Um, it's the it's the nefarious ones that I worry about. It's the the people who set up the schemes. Uh, where they signed up for, for the SERB benefit with somebody else's information and never really got it to the other person. They're collecting mail cards. And we know that that kind of stuff did happen and they are going to have to try to, to recover it, but it's unlikely. I mean, if it was a, an actual attempt, a criminal attempt to defraud the system, which is what it was be really hard to get that money back but the people who just uh, they thought they could have you know received the money everybody was applying for it you might as well put your name in and if you got it there you got
1: it now you're gonna have to pay it back because you got it wrong uh yeah but uh, a lot of those people don't have it sherry de novo
4: um well first of all let's let's say a positive note here um and that is that you know the the two thousand dollars serve payment um Thank God for it um, for most people, and, and and not only that, but I, I thought it was an interesting, precedent-setting move. Um, not just during a pandemic, but it showed that you know a guaranteed uh, annual livable income can work to support people and can be, I think, ultimately cost-effective. Um, despite the attempts that that, uh, that uh, Lisa was referring to, um, the, the the real problem, I think. Uh, and it it would be interesting to see the numbers broken down a little bit more here. But um there was a lot of money that went to corporations that profited significantly during the pandemic um to support uh, their payroll. and, and if there's there's money to be regained and reclaimed, um, perhaps that's a place to look. Because um, again, these are not just individual university students who, you know, for the most part, made a mistake, um, and may not have the money, as you said, Libby. But um, these are corporations who did extremely well and who, you know, got support from the government, and I, I think come to repay.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think of one notorious example, uh, which is uh, a huge corporation. It is Bell Media, and they got a huge amount of a uh, uh, wage subsidy. Just and and probably they figured out the timeline so that it was legal before literally firing an entire news department. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, So, um, uh, Lisa, do you think this will have legs politically or uh, just people are moving on, as John suggested? I think John's right.
3: And I think the Emergencies Act exercise that we witnessed in the past six weeks is, is a proof point to that as well. I think people have decided that what we went through, we went through. The majority of people have decided that What we went through, we went through. We came out of it as as good as we could possibly come out of it. And now let's move forward to the next challenges. And that's why I don't think it's getting a huge amount of traction. Where the Conservatives will go on this is they will accuse the government of not being able to manage the the finances of the nation, which is pretty much what they talk about all the time anyway. And this will just be more examples. So whether or not it's going to land uh, as a single item, I doubt it. But is it Another thing to add to the list of things that the Trudeau government doesn't manage well, possibly.
1: Hmm. Uh moving along to the provincial government, uh, there's this new Main Street poll that I think is pretty eye-opening because uh, it really feels like the progressive conservative government has taken a turn from, you know, the kinder, gentler version we were seeing to to something different and uh, it according to this poll and it's just one poll uh, a majority of people, including progressive conservative voters, are against this move to open up the Green Belt. John, is, is this going to go anywhere?
2: Oh, I think this is going to hang on for a long, long time. I think people are upset for two reasons. First of all, because of the nature of the move itself, which isn't really understandable. I mean, they're talking about 1.5 million houses. And they're doing this for 50,000 houses, something very dramatic. And that's the second point. The idea behind the Green Belt is it's supposed to be kept away from politicians. It's a piece of land that's set aside uh, forever. And, you know, here they are mucking about in it. And, you know, it may be a bit of a stretch, but, you know, it sort of brings up the notwithstanding clause. You know, the Constitution says one thing, well, we're going to ignore the Constitution. We set up the Green Belt. We're not supposed to touch the Green Belt. We're going to touch the Green Belt. I think it's this pattern of them... Involving themselves where they shouldn't is 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 uh, annoying people as much as as opening up the green belt itself and i think I think it's gonna it's gonna stay with them for a while and I mean there's this whole fundraising aspect and that some of these developers that stand to make tens of millions of dollars were were very close to the p c government huge donors like for the opposition it's kind of the gift that keeps on giving and and I think ontarians are 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 rightly upset about it.
1: Well, I think there's also the issue that Doug Ford made a promise. He said he wasn't going to touch it, and he did. And and uh, even a lot of their messages, you know, promises made, promises kept. Uh, Sherry, are, are they just miscalculating, misfiring on this?
4: Oh, absolutely. And And let's face it, I mean, this deal smells. <laughs> I mean, you've got uh, former cabinet ministers, president of the conservative parties that are lobbyists for some of the biggest developers on this. We have um, some of the biggest developers, huge contributors to conservative party. Um, we have people who borrowed money at exorbitant rates uh, to invest in land that at that point was presumably never going to be developed. Why did they do that? Um, and and finally, and this this constant justification that this is about more housing and we need more housing. We need more affordable housing. Um, I don't think anybody on OW or ODSP is going to be able to afford one of those homes. Um, And I don't think anybody on minimum wage is
5: going to be afford-
4: able to afford one of those homes. Or many, many, you know, millennials or, or Gen Xers who simply can't afford to, you know, raise the down payment. This isn't going to help them. Um, This is about pandering to developers and at the expense of... Biodiversity. Talking about another conference that's going on as we speak, um, and uh, and and protected land, and of course, um, and and you know, they're called for the Auditor General to look into this. Just call, calls for uh, the Integrity Commissioner to look into this, and there have been calls for the OPP to look into this. I mean, that's how bad this deal is, and I and it's not going anywhere anytime soon, and. Um, and I think one or other of those bodies will investigate. And, I, you
1: know, I suspect what they'll find. Lisa, is this going to stick? Or, or do you think that, uh, as with other things, Doug Ford will back down?
3: So I dug into the polls, with Libby, because I was very interested to see what the breakdowns were. And l- let me just put it straight. If you lived in Toronto, if you're from Toronto, you live there, you are far less outraged than if you lived in the Hamilton, Niagara area. And it's a big jump. It's a 20-point jump between whether or not you live in Toronto. They still don't like it. They still disapprove. But it's not as great disapproval as it is out in the Hamilton area. 68% disapproval in Hamilton and only 48% in Toronto. As well, the people who are really outraged are the folks making more than 100000 a year. People making less than 50000 are the least outraged. So I don't know whether or not you can draw any conclusions about affordable housing or not. What I can say is that the policy isn't isn't being viewed as outrageous by people who make less than fifty thousand and that live in Toronto, which seems to be a lot of the votes for the for the government in terms of, of moving forward. And really that's who they're selling this to. We need to open up the green belt in order to provide more housing for you. So it seems to be biting in that area. For the people who live in the more rural areas and make a lot more money, they're the ones that are outraged that they're losing their green belt. Find the polling very, very interesting. And I know people are going to pour over the numbers and crunch them and figure out what it all means.
1: But but Lisa, I mean, the Conservatives don't do well in the city of Toronto.
3: Sure. uh, But the numbers are telling you what they're telling you. I mean, it's the Main Street poll that asked about Bill 23. And in Toronto, the numbers were more favorable than they were out in the Hamilton area. It's fascinating. I don't know what people are going to glean from it, but to say that it's it's the uprising of the of the folks um, who don't care. About, I just find it interesting that it's the people who make the most and live in those areas are the ones that are the most critical, and yet the policy is being aimed at getting more people affordable housing. Well, and it seems to be
1: working. Well, but yeah, but I'm just but. Those people in Toronto are not Doug Ford's voters, and those people that you cite are Doug Fos- Ford's voters.
3: It's no, a, it's very in- well. It, it is, and they do go into that too, Libby. They show that you know the policy is not popular with uh, with twenty four percent of of, uh, of progressive conservative voters as well. No question about it. Um, but you know, it, I got maybe this is a way for them to make in into Toronto. Maybe this is a policy that. That is working for people who live in Toronto and don't
1: have access to the green belt, but sure as heck think that they want to have affordable housing. Right, uh, and the the chances that somebody making fifty thousand would be able to afford one of those houses on the green belt is, uh, I think, in the minus category. But Lisa, do you think there's yeah. a chance he'll back off, or do you think that's it? Don't know. I think
3: people are gonna take a look at the polling around it and figure out if they're gonna push through on it. If there's a time to do this kind of, of policy work, it's in your first year of your mandate and we'll see what ends up happening and whether or not they're gonna push ahead. But I, I haven't seen any indication that they, they weren't gonna go ahead. Putting all that aside, if there are gonna be that if there's gonna be scrutiny into malfeasance in the way that this rolled out, then bring it on because nobody should be making profit. From, from this kind, if there's a backroom deal, or if there is somebody who got information they shouldn't have gotten at the wrong time and took advantage of it, then they should be held to account.
1: Well, yeah, and there there's always that question, John, uh, is it a tip? Is it a, a strong hint? And there was waffling, you know, um, Steve Clark was waffling first when he was asked, and then the answer became no. I mean, uh, I'm sure that this will be looked at, but, it, you know, I think Sherry is right that it, it doesn't really look great.
2: No, I mean, it uh, the whole thing is uh, very fishy, but, you know, the other thing... And- Everyone on the panel will recognize this. When people, and I don't mean to sound so patronizing, but the worst kind of political trouble you get is when it's straightforward and people can understand it. And people understand the green belt. People understand, they think of it as like a park or whatever, you know, a protected area. And now it's being developed. People get that. And to to echo your point, you know, the media have been full of... uh, clips and quotes from both Doug Ford and Steve Clark saying we would never do it. So it's, it's really straightforward on one level. And I realize underneath it, it's very complicated about how do you address housing, et cetera, et cetera. But for the, the ordinary citizen, they get it. This is supposed to be protected land, and now it isn't. And Doug Ford and Steve Clark said they wouldn't like it. It's it's really a dream for the opposition because you you can explain it in 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 five seconds and you know I I don't know how the government I I I'm not sure they're going to back down after they back down after you know with the labor negotiations I mean two in a row makes you look very weak but they've got a real problem because you know Mr and Mrs ordinary Ontarian understand this one and we've seen from the polls a lot of them aren't appreciative of it.
1: Hmm. Uh. Merritt Stiles about to be acclaimed as the new Ontario NDP leader, Sherry predicted it a year
4: ago and
1: hey it's happening.
4: <laughs> um yeah um uh, uh I mean disclosure I think it's great. Um I'm a fan of Maritz. I've uh I know her well and um and think she's the real deal and I think it's uh, exactly what should have happened. So um so so good uh, and uh, I think that's the general mood of the party quite frankly as well. It'll be interesting to see who, uh, becomes chief of staff and what her team looks like when she gets moving. Um, but there's no question to me, she's been savvy with the press and a great education critic when we needed a good education critic. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and she's a person of principle, which to me is very much imp- the important aspect, not, you know, now that I'm a bit postpartisan. Um, and so she's that as well. So, um, yeah
1: good it's good i mean uh i have uh even uh heard people who are are conservatives who are fans of hers and and think uh as you say that she is the real deal i wonder does uh, does having this happen by acclamation uh is is that a is is that a problem lisa
3: I don't think it's a problem, but certainly uh, I enjoy a leadership contest because then I get to know the different players and you get a little bit more of um, of a flavor of their individuality and, and how they contrast and what the party looks at. But obviously there is great consensus around her. And as a result, you know, run with what you got, which is it's a consensus. It's not just consensus. It is the sole candidate is the person they've chosen and this is the the path and the direction she's got immense i think credibility to mold the party in the way that she wants to move it forward so a wonderful opportunity for a politician just from being on the outside i you know would have enjoyed seeing more people and in, in different points of view but that the next now we got to look to see what the liberals come up with because two of the three pieces are in place.
1: Well, funny you For should four. mention that uh, because I don't see signs that the liberals are getting their act together. And on the weekend, I was talking to a liberal on Insider and uh, heard what I thought was ooh something I would definitely not have thought of that there are people in the party who are hoping to recruit. Mike Schreiner, the of the Greens, to be a Liberal leader, uh, John.
2: Well, that's been—I mean, yeah—that's been bandied around in the uh, in, in the media. And uh, I listen. I think uh, you know uh, the the NDP have have gone one route in choosing a leader rather quickly. I mean, the Liberals were taking our time to uh, to do it, and uh, you know, people are are trying to be creative in terms of. Uh, uh, you know, who 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 could we recruit? Or I shouldn't say who we am saying that all the corporate says, but who could the party re- recruit? And, uh, you know, N- uh, Naderiskin smith from Ottawa has expressed some some interest of, So sort of be a federal MP. There are those that are, are, are talking about Mike Schreiner. I find that a fascinating idea. I mean, he's certainly I think he's one of the most effective politicians in Ontario uh, uh, today. And I think there, I would there agree. is a lot of sorry.
1: I said I would agree.
2: Yeah, and I think there's a lot of overlap between the provincial greens and uh, and uh, uh, you know the Ontario Liberal Party. Uh, you know, the federal the, the, the federal scene is a little bit different, and they're quite chaotic. But I, I think provincially, he's he's sort of been unfortunately a one person show for him. But uh, you know, he's very effective. So you know, I think I think it's great that the Liberals are 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 trying to think outside the box because you know it's it's complicated out there right now, and it, it might need a little bit of imagination.
1: Has he been approached?
2: Oh, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not aware of, uh, of, of those machinations. I know, uh, you know, Steve, Steve Pakin wrote a wrote a very provocative piece a, a while ago. There's been there's been chit chat uh, around uh, about it. And, you know, as I say, I think it, I think it's a, an interesting idea.
1: Lisa, is there anybody else that you could think of as a potential new liberal leader? Or what about the Mike Schreiner idea? Well, it, what's interesting for me about Mike Schreiner is, is this a merge
3: of parties or is this just moving somebody over to the liberal side of the ledger? Two completely different prospects. I mean, one is, one is, um, one person and the other is, uh, two cultures. And that's not easy to do whatsoever. And it's complex. So maybe that's where, the, the discussions are around, you know, is it just Mike, will you come over and sit with us or is it, are uh, the, is the green going to fold into the Liberal party? Um, who would I like to see? I, I honestly think that this is a time when some federal Liberal cabinet ministers should be wondering whether or not they want to run uh, for another, another term in 2025 in Ottawa with their current prime minister, or do they want to test their leadership capabilities? Here in the province of Ontario and become the premier because the next time around you know it's it's a third time out for Ford at all, and there's a good shot for the Liberals in the next election or the NDP and it would be very attractive if you have leadership aspirations, it's not going to happen at the federal level for the next seven to ten years, so take a look at your home province Anita Anand. <laughs>
1: Well, I'm not so sure it's not going to happen at the federal level. I mean, uh, you know, Trudeau has said he's staying; he's got to say right. that. And uh, you mentioned Anita Anand. I know everybody says Christians next, but but uh, I was thinking that at the federal level, Anita Anand is next, possibly. But you've got a—that's a big bet you're wagering that the
3: prime minister is deciding. To leave, I don't think he is. I've seen him in—I've seen him in person at some events, and he's on fire. He is really at the top of his game. I don't see why he would leave but to do what?
1: Oh, who knows? <laughs> you know, That's a good question. He's Canada. a young
3: man. Yeah, it's the best job in Canada, um, and you know, I'm sure he'd like to run in another election. And you got to wait two years to an election, and then another two years before you run in a leadership. I don't know. I think. I do believe that a great prize right now is the Ontario Liberal Party leadership. I really do. Not for me. I'm not saying that I'm interested. Don't get me wrong. But I think it is something that people should take a serious look at. Hmm.
1: Interesting. Interesting. These are things that we will continue to talk about in the new year. Now, we only have a few minutes left, so I, I want to get to these grocery hearings and to yesterday, when the new food price inflation report, I mean, I can tell you that our phones, like, just, they were on fire. There was nothing else that people wanted to talk about. And here we have these grocery executives, not the CEOs, uh, you know, on Parliament Hill, and uh, saying, of course, we would never do that. But, you know, they their performances were not... Uh, Awe inspiring, shall we say. Does anyone disagree with that? Oh, I agree.
2: I think I, the 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 problem is it's it's such a good political issue, and yet you know it's sort of like gas pricing. Every opposition party, and I'm not being partisan because the liberals were just as bad when we were in opposition. We were going to fix it when we got in, and you can't fix it. I mean, you know this this stuff is so complicated, and I think there were. You know, I think, I think what the grocery executive said, there's probably some truth to it. I think they probably also were, were exaggerating a bit more about the lack of control they have. But it's just really, oh, really yeah, really Crimea tough to, River. Yeah, it's, they have it's all tough the... to think of the, it's tough they, to think of the, the solutions. 21%
4: uh, profits. Uh, are, are something you can, you can point to. Um, I mean, that's significant. They made a lot of money during the pandemic. Um, the, the grocery barons, um, we were, we're definitely talking greedflation here. Let's be frank. And, you know, whatever is happening in the food chain because of the pandemic, the the end result is most, you know, most middle class to, to poorer Canadians are having to struggle with their grocery bills and then they're being asked to donate at the, ca- you know, at the checkout. to to other, you know, people who are struggling with grocery bills. I mean, this is, you know, first of all, horrible PR, among other things, but also just plain greed. I mean, pass on some of the profits to your customers, please.
1: I mean, yeah, and there was this big backlash. They they not only ask you to donate money, which I never do at the grocery store, but uh, they were asking people to donate points. Mm-hmm. Right, this is blah blah, right, and they have all these points, and they do all these redemption things because because uh they don't want to keep lots of points on the books uh and and people were just outraged, you want my points so that you don't have to give me free groceries, mm-hmm. and then uh y- you get some kind of credit i mean it um it, it, what is the matter with them, Lisa? Yeah. So uh, my point is, is a little bit different, not on
3: the nose, but I'll tell you, I agree with you, Libby. I think you said this at the beginning. I can't believe that the CEOs didn't go, that they sent people who were not the the top of the food chain. CEOs go to their annual shareholder meetings because they have to be accountable to the shareholders. They should also be accountable to the members of parliament when the members of parliament ask you to come in to talk about an issue. So my solve for this is if you know, if the cabinet minister has been asked for a meeting with the CEO, um, you know, send in your junior policy advisor and see how the CEO is going to enjoy that, because I think that's exactly what they the message they just sent, which is we're too busy and we're too important to come and talk to you who are bringing the concerns of your constituents to the House of Parliament to be answered to. And they didn't show up. So I'm critical of that
1: yeah apparently they sent another invitation specifying c e o s but it was you know it always almost reminded me of that classic uh nixon kennedy debate i mean they're sending uh you know probably a very talented executive you know it made me think of Richard Nixon with the five o'clock shadow what when you have the pitchman who's like media trained up the wazoo. Uh, sitting at home and, and it, he's insulting the politicians, as you say. I mean, I just, I guess the, the arrogance and entitledness, but you know, it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of good sense as a PR strategy. Uh, John or Sherry, do you want to weigh in on that before we wrap up?
2: Oh li- listen I agree I agree 100% I think I think what what's been going on and you can go all the way back to loblaws and fixing the price of bread and all yeah. that I think it's I think it's horrible I think it's 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 a great political issue um I just I just wish those in in, in power could figure out how to deal with it because it's you know everybody ties ta- like the weather and gas prices you know everyone talks about mm-hmm. it and then they and then they they don't seem to be able to get the the, I mean, the, the handle what
4: California on it. does tax some of those profits back. Um, and I think it's completely doable, and they should do it.
1: Okay. I'm looking at the clock. We're over time. Thank you so much, Lisa Rate, John Malloy, and Sherry DeNovo. We will talk again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks, Bye-bye. lady.
2: Bye-bye.
1: All right. We're taking a break. And when we come back, we were talking about people opposing uh, opening up the green belt. Well, so is parks canada and uh, that opposition may actually lead somewhere we'll talk about it when we come back
0: you're listening to an exclusive podcast of fight back on zoomer radio heard weekdays from noon to one oh, no. fight back with libby Sneimer on zoomer radio
1: Welcome back. We have been talking about the latest poll that found a majority of Ontarians oppose the plan to open parts of the Greenbelt to development. Well, now, Parks Canada is also voicing its opposition, warning that the decision was made without consultation and could cause, quote, «irreversible harm to wildlife, including endangered species». The concerns of Parks Canada could also be setting the stage for a possible request for a federal environmental assessment, which would delay development of the whole sensitive area. And right now, I am joined by Phil Pothin, Ontario Environment Program Manager at Environmental Defence. Hello, Phil. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. So, uh, how important is this uh, rather sternly worded letter from Parks Canada? Well, Parks Canada's
5: letter has ripped away any remaining shred of the uncertainty that this government has tried to use to conceal the gravity of what it's doing to the Greenbelt, natural heritage, and farmland more generally. Parks Canada has confirmed what we at Environmental Defense, but also other independent experts have been saying from the start. This is a Direct attempt to loot some of the crown jewels of the Greenbelt. This isn't a boundary adjustment. This is a cynical attempt to transfer public value to uh, you know a few well-connected landowners. This is a huge blow if this goes ahead uh, to the biodiversity and uh, long-term sustainability of the Great the Golden Horseshoe.
1: Just as a point of information, uh, this letter said that there was an agreement where the province had to consult first. What was that agreement? Can you tell us?
5: Well, you know, this is actually something that was between, uh, you know, Parks Canada and the provincial government. Certainly there was a commitment to engage in this consultation, and and, uh, Parks Canada is best placed to judge. Uh, you know, whether that commitment isn't met, it certainly sounds like it hasn't been. But, you know, what, what's incredible? What's the clear, substantive repudiation of this proposal from Parks Canada? It suggests that the government uh, provincially should be rejecting this. They've been caught out. Their, their claim that this is not a big deal environmentally has been repudiated, but also that the federal government needs to use all the tools at Disposal, and there are many of those in order to stop this project, uh, this real reckless giveaway from going ahead.
1: Well, my understanding at this point is that yes, the federal government can call for an environmental assessment, uh, uh, but uh, so far they have said there's no indication that that's warranted. So what has to happen before they trigger that process, and, and who would make the decision on that?
5: Well, I mean, we think the criteria have been met. And we call on Minister Gibault to uh, to go ahead with that environmental assessment. It's also worth noting that there are other levers that the federal government has that they should be using in addition to the environmental assessment process. They should be making funding to those municipalities contingent on stopping sprawl and in particular Not developing this patch of land, Uh, they should require transit-supporting development agreements that prohibit this development into the Duffins Jewish Agricultural Preserve. Uh, The government needs to go all out uh, federally and play hardball. If the provincial government continues on just ruthlessly going ahead from what we all know is the wrong thing, I just want to underline: there is no need for additional land in this community. There are 300 kilometers of existing designated greenfield area in the GTA age. And in this region, they have the biggest existing plot of designated greenfield area that's farmland that's already been designated for development that's been sitting unused for years. Nobody thinks that we need more land and let alone to leapfrog over the land that's already been made available to jump into the greenbelt. This isn't about developing more homes. It's This is about enriching a few people who bought this land dirt cheap and will get a golden ticket if this opened up sprawl.
1: Okay, Phil. uh, We're actually, uh, it's not that easy to hear you on your line, but uh, thanks very much for your comments. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thank you. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, some pretty sobering numbers about our indebtedness, uh, credit card indebtedness. And they come as we're heading into the holiday season, not as we are experiencing that debt hangover. Uh, so I want to delve into that when we get back the numbers to call 416-360-0740 toll-free 744 uh, 740 And I want to hear from you. Have you been uh, racking up charges on those credit cards? Uh, I know there's a lot of pent-up demand. Uh, there's inflation. I know that people are probably using their credit cards to buy groceries these days. So, uh, Tell us what your situation is and uh, if you have any trepidation about paying off those credit cards. We're taking another break and we will have that when we come back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's a
1: sobering number, especially as we are just heading into the holiday spending season. According to Equifax Canada, consumer debt in this country reached 2.36 trillion. That's trillion with a T in the third quarter, and that's a 7.3% increase compared to last year. That is a lot. The debt is fueled by an increase in borrowers. Okay, so just how serious is the situation and what can you do about managing your own debt? Let me give the numbers out. I'm also curious about your own debt, are you now having to use credit cards uh, to buy everyday things that have gone up in price? I'm talking about groceries, whatever else you need for your household. What about holiday spending? Uh, I know that... Uh, it's not the end of the pandemic, but it kind of feels like that. And I know that people want to let loose. I know that there's a lot of so-called revenge travel, pent-up demand. People have been cooped up for going on three years and they want to get out. So what is your response and how is it affecting your spending? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740 740. And now I am joined by Stacy yanchak Oleksi, the Chief Executive Officer of Credit Counseling Canada. Hello, Stacy. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Libby. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So were you surprised by these numbers? No, not really. You know,
6: I think about, you know, what we've been experiencing is, you know, over the last couple of years is, you know, we've been prevented from spending, I'm not convinced that consumers have really changed their habits. I think we've just been prevented. So now that things are opening up, you know, there's more desire to spend and the cost of living has gone up significantly as well. So I'm not surprised that people are using their credit cards to handle life.
1: But, you know, presumably uh, during that time when we were prevented from spending, we heard all about how savings were going up. Are those depleted now? You know, I think on the consumer, right? I think for some consumers, you know, they were able to weather the
6: storm of COVID quite nicely. You know, perhaps they could work from home, you know, so they were prevented from spending on transportation and new clothing and, you know, lunches out, um, you know, and were able to be topped up with CERB or even product deferrals from the creditors. But now that things have returned back to quote-unquote normal, you know, those measures are gone and so things are getting more expensive. And so I'm not surprised at all that this is happening. Hmm.
1: And does it worry you to see this number, you know, before the holidays?
6: Oh, absolutely.
1: Yes. I mean, granted,
6: it's my job to worry about consumers Mm and (laughs) their spending. You know, I'm a little biased that that way, but, you know, it's not so much. I'm not worried about the next couple of weeks. What I'm worried about is, you know, the week after, you know, New Year's, right, when the bills start to roll in and the, the dismalness of January hits. And now we've got to deal with our bills, you know, an expensive bag of apples, like $9 for a bag of apples. And now we've got to manage it and figure out how to pay it off. Hmm. That's my word.
1: Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, demographics and how people in different demographics, different age groups are are handling debt and, and their debt. So I would assume that young people have the most debt that is true. You know, it's an expensive time of life.
6: And also, you know, as you start to, you know, create a family that gets really expensive as well. So yes, younger people, you know, have taken on more debt.
1: But in the last few years, you know, it used to be that people who were retired people on fixed incomes didn't take on debt, they didn't get themselves into mortgages, even though we're talking here about non mortgage debt. Uh, But that changed you know before the pandemic so what's the situation of older consumers
6: right so you know with seniors now typically you know seniors do have less debt than you know non-seniors and you know we 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 seem to see that they're more i and i use air quotes you know responsible with their finances but you know they've had more experience with it However, what we're seeing is, you know, death has increased, you know, in the seniors age group, you know, by about 8.2%. But I would look at it that, you know, look at the life that we're all leading. Life has gotten more expensive, you know, whether it's at the gas tank or at the grocery store. And I think that's impacting seniors. They may be, imp- or they may be helping adult children, you know, where, you know, someone's lost a job throughout COVID. And maybe you've got a senior helping, you know, their adult adult children and their family. And so that can create more
1: cost. I was just to, uh, about to ask about that. I mean, that's <laughs> also something that started before the pandemic, mm-hmm. where uh, I think there was one bank study that said uh, at, on average to the tune of 500 bucks a month for adult children, we know that with the cost of owning a home, you know, it, it generally doesn't even happen without the bank of mom and dad to to a very large degree. Right.
6: And, you know, we're conditioned that, you know, we're family, so we help each other and we're conditioned, you know, in society that there is a bank of mom and dad, but sometimes that bank, you know, is depleted. The resources are depleted. And so, you know, certainly some of our, you know, member agencies, you know, who do nonprofit credit counseling have seen seniors where they're overhelping. And in fact, it's costing them and it's hurting them, you know, to help their adult children. So it is happening.
1: I, I, I'm very interesting in that phenomenon, uh, overhelping. So in, in terms of finances, how would you decide that? And what do you tell those people? You know, and it's a tough conversation to have because what we're talking about is like the values,
6: you know, that those core values of family. But I think it's important that we talk about, okay, what what's within our means to help? You know, if you can help and it's within your means and it doesn't hurt your heart or your bank account, then help all the way if that's what serves you. However, if it hurts the relationship and or it hurts the bank account, where, you know, the senior parent is now going into debt, We need to talk about how that help actually hurts and the long-term consequences, and perhaps there's another way to help that adult child become more independent without actually bleeding out the account.
1: Well, how would you decide, I mean, is there a percentage of monthly income at a certain point where you say that's too much, you can't give any more money away? And do you also deal, you talk about hurting the relationships, because people fight about money, let's face it. Uh, (laughs) Oh, they do. And do, Mm -hmm. do you deal with that as well? Tell me more about that. Yeah, so let's talk about the percentage. I would say there is no percentage. I think it's about that person's
6: um, capacity? And do they feel like they can help while, again, not going into debt? If they are going into debt, that's a huge, huge red flag that that help is no longer helping that person. It's actually hurting someone else. And that's not the point of financial help. In terms of finances and money and relationships, oh my goodness, <laughs> I feel like maybe you and I need three hours on this. Okay, <laughs> so Interesting and juicy, right? But sometimes, you know, the help can create resentment. You know, maybe it's a power struggle. Maybe that help comes with strings from the parent. But also, maybe it's also resentment from that parent that they're over that they're having to help and it's hurting them. So that's where, you know, I believe that nonprofit credit counselors can certainly help with those conversations and help, you know, help people guide those conversations so they're not so miserable.
1: Uh- and so when it is, uh, you know, an emotional issue, when there's resentment or strings, uh, I mean, do you do, it sounds like psychological counseling, not credit counseling.
6: Well, and you know what they, and while we're not therapists or psychologists, I think what we're talking about is people and families and money, right? And relationships are complicated. And so that's where, you know, credit counselors can work with their clients to say, you know, what are your values? And what can you Financially, you know, what's feasible financially, like looking at the real numbers instead of just the feelings about it, and then creating a plan. And sometimes that plan is, you know, I'm going to give you the next six months of help, but after that, you've got to figure it out. Or in return for help, I need X, Y, Z from you, right? So it feels a little more equal. You know, there are lots of ways to negotiate a relationship, but it's really complicated when it comes to money because it's,
1: it's family
5: and money. <laughs> yeah.
1: I'm going to take a call from Jim in Pickering. Hi, Jim.
5: Hi. Uh, good afternoon, Libby and guests. You know something, I'm listening to that, and it's something that you have to um, teach and bring them up and, and give them good example. And, you know, if, for myself, everything I buy is 75%, 80% is on sale. If it's not on sale, I don't need it this week because it'll be on sale next week. And as far as helping the children, right, I've explained to them from day one that, you know, A.V. wants and needs, and for myself too. So if they need help, you should help them and explain to them your help and they need help, and I'm giving you this help. But if it's just something they want and they're not being responsible, you're not helping them.
1: Okay, well, uh, thanks for that. Uh, I guess it's not always that straightforward to distinguish and there's uh, the emotions again. Uh, Stacy.
6: Absolutely. And I think Jim is right about, you know, of course we want to teach our, you know, our children to be responsible with money and, you know, discern, you know, wants versus needs. And I think he's absolutely right that it's okay to have that conversation too, right? But we also need to have that conversation about, you know, what are my needs if I'm the senior giving money and what are, what's my adult child's needs And then come to an agreement. And sometimes that includes a written out, quote unquote, contract. Whether it's enforceable or not is not the point. It's just that we've agreed to certain behaviors and we've agreed to certain actions. You know, and that can clarify things pretty quickly for family, too.
1: How how often does that happen, a written agreement? You know what? I, I don't know.
6: I don't have any statistics on that, but, you know, I think it's certainly, a, I think it's a viable option, and I know when I was a credit counselor, I would recommend that as well. Because what it does is it lays it down on paper, here are the expectations. It's just the rule of engagement. And when it comes to money, you know, there's real value in being clear and concise about what the rules are, so that people don't get miserable and mean about it later on.
1: Hmm, hmm. Now, if people are finding themselves strapped, uh, we only have a, a few minutes left. Can you go through a, a, a step-by-step, like, how do you get a handle on it? Um, I, I would assume that a lot of people who are getting into trouble are uh, maybe don't exactly know how much is coming in and how much is going out. You know what, Libby? I think that is exactly where it's at. And
6: unfortunately, it's the most boring financial advice to offer, right? But it is literally to write down what you're spending. You know, most people have that conversation or ask themselves in their head, you know, where did all my money go last month? The key and the solution is actually just writing it down. And it's pretty amazing how quickly, you know, after doing that a month or two, how quickly you become aware of your money and make decisions that start to align better with your values. You know, this cup of coffee is just going to make me feel good for the next 10 minutes. You know, do I need to spend five bucks on it? Or can I just keep that in my savings account and enjoy something later on? Coffee's not bad. So I'm not saying don't buy the coffee, but at least you're making intentional decisions because now you know where your money's going. It's not that exciting though, Libby. It's way more fun to spend the money than it is to write it down. But tracking your expenses is a key step. And then once you have that information, then you can start to make decisions about whether this works for you or not. And what I always recommend is that if you are feeling remotely stressed or worried or overwhelmed, connect in with a local nonprofit credit counselor, because they can help guide you through that process and remind you you're not alone. Because oftentimes we associate net worth, you know, how much are we worth financially, um... To self worth, how, what are we worth as a person? Well, those are very different ideas. Those should not be joined, but we often do. So we feel ashamed when we need help. And that's, that's the least, that's the thing that we need to feel ashamed about the least is money help because we just don't know. Jim's right. You know, we didn't know how, we weren't taught as kids necessarily. You know, so reach up for help.
1: The thing about the $5 coffee, everybody talks about the $5 coffee. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if people who are strapped have that. They, you know, probably don't have a $5 coffee every day. I mean, what mm-hmm. if you do the accounting these days when everything is so expensive and, and mm-hmm. there isn't a lot to cut? You've got to pay your bills. You've got to eat.
6: And that's where, you know, that's where it gets really challenging, you know, for some Canadians and especially for seniors on fixed income, you know, the cost of living increases becomes you know, ever more challenging every month. And so, again, I would recommend if that if there's a real accounting issue, cash flow issue, you know, again, reaching out to a local nonprofit credit counselor for ideas. You know, there might be benefits that are not being accessed. Um, there might be ways to save some money or sometimes... You know, it's downsizing for some individuals, that's an option for them, right? It depends on the, the, the individual's circumstances and their financial situation. That's uh, when the, Like the solutions are dictated by those two situations.
1: And uh, before we go, any advice for people as they are out shopping or online shopping? You know, how do you uh, restrain yourself a little bit? You know, what I would say,
6: and this is a reflection of my values, so please take it with a grain of salt, but I think there's so much more value given that we've all lived through as best we could COVID, the gift of presence, like to be present in someone's life, to be present for dinner or whatever, than physical presence, you know, gifts under the tree. And so I encourage people to, you know, shop within their values, you know, would actually going for, if we're using coffee for the, the example Would going for coffee with my best friend be more of a gift because we're going to be out than if I just get her a gift card, right? And so there are different ways to give the gift of love without actually having to spend a
1: lot of money. Okay, anything else you'd like to leave us with, but I only have 10 seconds for you. Yeah, anybody who's um, concerned about their finances, reach out to creditcounselingcanada.ca and we would be happy to connect you with a local nonprofit credit counselor. Okay. Thank you so much, Stacy Jancuk Alexi. You. Okay. And that is all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to 1. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.